Welcome everybody. Thank you so much for being here for acknowledgement, the first harm and the imperative of cross-cultural dialogue, which of course is a much larger and broader topic than what we can really dive into together tonight. If we had maybe a few years uh, of 24 seven circle, um, <laughs> we scratched the surface, but I'm really grateful to be here as your host tonight. My name is Molly Rowan Leach and I am living and working on the stolen lands here in what is called Colorado um, of the Cheyenne and the Ute peoples. And I want just to state that um, besides a warm and, and uh, gracious welcome to you all before an introduction to our um, extraordinary guests tonight, uh, to state just to you that I mean no harm as your host. And if any is caused tonight um, for any reason that I am very open and welcoming of feedback, I recognize my privilege and my responsibility as your host. I'm the founder of Restorative Justice on the Rise. And this is a 10 year and running project which includes public dialogues um, educational offerings, and most importantly, a place to convene and connect, to slow down and to look more deeply into how the restorative justice global movement can most accurately and respectfully, in every sense of that word, honor one another, those that have come before and those that are yet to arrive. So tonight's dialogue is one that's near and dear to my heart. Um, I've worked with both of our speakers, as I'm sure you probably have had the wonderful opportunity of meeting, um, uh, especially Edward Villandra, given the huge success of the book, um, the compilation of very important essays and invitations to us all, especially settlers. Um, colorizing restorative justice. So on that note, I just wanted to show a bit of um, the background of colorizing restorative justice and to heartfelt thanks um, for the ongoing relationship that restorative justice on the rise enjoys um, with Living Justice Press as a whole. Living Justice Press was founded in 2002. Colorizing restorative justice came out just this last year. It is the most important book in the restorative justice field. Um, Edward Valandra Wanjbli Wapaha Hokshila is the editor. And of course, there's a foreword from the Honorable Robert Yazi, uh, Judge Robert Yazi, uh, Justice, excuse me. Um, Tonight we have a little surprise. Um, thanks to Living Justice Press, we will be doing a drawing to send two participants a book. Now, given the crazy times that we're in, um, if you're overseas, it's not a barrier, but it may take even longer than it does um, to get, a, get those books to you. But we've been donated some books to give away. Um, as a thank you for your presence here tonight, those of you in attendance, we'll draw um, two names for two copies of the book tonight. Um, I would encourage you to look into, if you haven't already, the extraordinary BIPOC community 
that has contributed to this book. And of course, there's other events that are up and coming um, that involve some of the contributors. And I actually have seen quite a few extraordinary events, um, including Edward and the, the contributors to Colorizing Restorative Justice. Um, thank you, Edward, so much for being here tonight. Um, in just a moment, I'm, we're going to open this up, but let me just pause and also honor um, Ed, Ed Keener. And I apologize for the image. Um, their website is down tonight for maintenance, but um, KesslerKeenerFoundation.org is their website. LivingJusticePress.org is where you can find Colorizing Restorative Justice. Now with the Kessler Keener Foundation, we're looking at um, our guest speaker tonight, Ed Keener, he is the founder. He is um, a very humble soul. He's a settler like myself, and he in, um, inspired cross-cultural dialogue beginning in Idaho, spreading out into the Pacific Northwest and the Rockies. And I was honored um, and still am honored, but uh, I did very close work with the Kessler Keener Foundation when I did live in Idaho. And for that, I am very grateful. Um, so I'm gonna hand it over to, let's start with you, Ed Keener. Um, would you be willing to just share a little bit more about Kessler Keener, its objectives and mission, and the honoring of uh, opening up cross-cultural dialogue? And again, welcome to the, to the both of you and to all of us as a circle tonight. Um, and before we start uh, with you, Ed, just a note, if you have any needs about voice choice tonight, we honor all ways of voicing in. We honor interactivity. Um, this is not just a, a deep dive conversation that is super urgent. It's also a way of hearing your voice. So we wanna just encourage you to um, voice in in the chat. You can open up your mic and interject. You can be um, exactly who you are tonight, how you showed up. So. Um, we are honored to have you. All right, passing it to you, Ed Keener. Thank you so much for being here. Um, please unmute your mic, Ed. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. And if you can't, please let, let me know anyone that I want to start with Molly's words. If I um, say something that offends, um, I surely would like to know that, and I appreciate you putting in that in the chat. I'm obviously an old white guy. Um, I'm about uh, ready to celebrate my 77th birthday. Um, I am a settler. I, um, I'm living in Boise, Idaho on um, unceded land. Uh, this ground belongs to the Shoshone peoples and the Paiute peoples. Um, and Boise was a very special place for indigenous folks uh, before uh, colonization, before incursion. It was known as a peace, a place of peace and um, there were uh, yearly, I've been told, yearly uh, celebrations along the Boise River. Um, 
a couple of stories have told me that uh, as many as 10,000 uh, dwellings during the summer time would be in the Boise River Valley. So that's a whole lot of people that came to enjoy this place. Ed, um, can you somehow get closer to your mic? Um, excuse me for interjecting, but um, we're getting some feedback that people can't hear you okay. that well. I will try. And you know what we could do is um, let's pass the mic and um, talking piece to Ed, Ed <laughs> Edward. And we'll come back to you okay. so that you don't feel stress about your sound. And I, I wanna acknowledge Tom, thank you for that. Um, we do intend only good and well-being. Thank you. Um, Edward, thank you so much for being here tonight. Well, I wanna thank everyone for uh... Uh, being here as well. I, Molly, thank you so much. Um, it's been a while since we had a conversation. Um, Edwin, it's good to, good to meet you. Um, <clears throat> I was calling him Edward at one time and he corrected me. It's like, it's Edwin. So I said, oh, it's, it's the battle of the Eds now. So, um, <laughs> so um, so anyway, I'm very pleased to be here, and I and I really think this is a an important topic about indigenous land acknowledgement, and I think we can um, open that discussion up in terms of what does it mean, why is it important, uh, what's its impact, if any, and what's the real purpose of a of, a, of an indigenous land acknowledgement. So those are the things that I I hope we have some engagement with tonight. So. Thank you, everybody, for being here. Oh, and Molly, thank you for um, saying my Lakota name. It, it, it's, it's something I, I want settlers to acknowledge. So thank you. Yeah. And thank you, Edward. So, um, I live on uh, unceded land uh, in the Boise Valley. My name is Ed Keener. Um, I have in, in my past been a public school educator and um, a pastor in the Presbyterian Church. And uh, I acknowledge um, the more I read, the more regret I have about things that um, I taught and believed. Uh, and I'm very grateful for the um, things that I've learned in the last uh, recent years. And actually, uh, one of the benefits of COVID is that I'm home all the time and I'm reading constantly. And I'm in um, two weekly book clubs that read black and brown authors. The Kessler Keener Foundation uh, has been in existence for over 20 years, but we certainly have not been um, knowledgeable or aware 
Uh, we've been an all-white organization up to the um, just the, the, the uh, recent um, la uh, last few years. And um, we have uh, held two, uh, three conferences that are native and non-native conferences. And um, we have been criticized, uh, particularly with the first conference that we didn't have enough native people on the planning committee. And uh, the fourth conference was going to be in 2020 and we, we had a good native representation. <clears throat> we now have five of our eight board members are indigenous persons. Um, and, and so we're learning a lot more and uh, I think doing some uh, much better uh, work because of that. Ed, I know um, tonight we were thinking about sharing a video from the Kessler Keener Foundation that highlights Phil Allen, who um, is, do you wanna say a little bit about yeah. Phil before we introduce this? And then I also wanna just quickly acknowledge what Edward was sharing about um, the incredible importance of land acknowledgement, especially for, as it relates to restorative justice, but not just that because a lot of us really feel the deep call that this is a, a way of life and a lens for being and how important it is to use specific language around land acknowledgement, especially as settlers with responsibilities um, that are important in this moment in time um, towards the recognition of stolen lands and coming back to the topic that, that we're gonna dive into tonight. So thank you, Edward, for opening up that um, space and we're gonna revisit that in a moment. Yeah. So Ed, if you would say a few things about Phil, his, his background, um, and then we'll show the video. Okay. So as I said, um... When COVID started, instead of doing a conference, we um, came around to producing uh, Native Voices videos of both youth and adults of Native people living in Idaho. So it can be used just specifically as fourth grade uh, history, Idaho history um, resources. And we also have uh, uh, lesson plans uh, that are produced by Native Indigenous peoples, teachers, um, and all the filming and uh, editing has been done by um, our, um, members of our Indigenous community, uh, board members. So Phil Allen is a longtime friend uh, living in Lapway, Idaho. He's Nez Perce. Uh, he's taught um, uh, university and college classes on native history, um, law uh, for over 20 years. Um, and uh, he, he, we brought him to Boise to, uh, about a year ago to, to um, start recording these native uh, voices. So Molly will give an example of we have Phil on 10 different videos.
it would be wonderful to have him here tonight with us. Um, honoring Phil Allen and just opening up uh, in further honor of uh, Ed, your work and of all the people involved with the cross-cultural dialogue work over all these decades. Um, so here's a video on from Native Voices in Idaho um, on the misconceptions from Phil Allen, Nimi Pu Nespers. So um, we'll be back in just a moment and we'll continue. Please let me know if the sound is working okay. My name is Phil Allen. I'm from the Nespers tribe up in Lapway, Idaho, and you'll probably get more information from your teachers or from other sources. But I wanted to speak about stereotypes a little bit. I know it's one of those topics that I'm pretty sure a lot of us do not like to speak about, but it's reality that, uh, you know, this time and age, uh, we have to look at what are stereotypes. Stereotypes are looking at general, how you look at people, whether it be terms of skin color, or where someone lives, or just making assumptions about a group of people that perhaps isn't true. And that's kind of what a, that, that is actually what a stereotype is. I'll give you an example of what a stereotype is, and I'll, I'll, I'll try to be general with that. Like one of the one of the stereotypes that we were thinking about as I was growing up was like all girls play with dolls. But that's not true, probably a lot of times, and maybe they do. All boys like to play with trucks. They like to play sports. Boys don't cry. Those are stereotypes. Um, there might be truth to that. And what I mean by that, it might be some truth to it. And again, depending how you grew up, how your parents are, how your grandparents are, how your school is, those all impact this idea of how uh, students look at stereotypes. Skin color, that's something that we had to live. They look at me, I, I'm a little bit of brown. Right. But there's just something that we can't control. And I think that's what uh, I want to get the message through uh, in terms of a, a, as a teacher. I'm a teacher as well. Uh, I teach college students mostly. For this segment, I want you as as younger students to start thinking about what are stereotypes. For Native people, there's a few of them and they're offensive. And, and a lot of times I think people use these terms or use these stereotypes and not really know that it's offensive. I'll give an example. I'm, I don't know if you students who are listening to me with this video or you teachers ever say, you know, go say Indian style. I have a little conflict with that because I don't understand where they got the Indian, the sitting Indian style where you sit down with your legs crossed. And I don't remember growing up ever sitting Indian style. <laughs> so I'm, I'm kind of joking about it, but I want you to understand a lot of times people don't realize that's sometimes offensive. Uh, let's see, what's another one? Looking at like all Indians live on reservations. And I would tell the teachers who are listening to me and you students, that's not true. I, I would say, let's say out of, an, I'll give an example, out of a hundred percent, let's say you got a hundred pennies. We'll take all these hundred pennies and we'll take 70, 75 of them and put them in that jar. And that, jar's, that jar is actually a city. And what I mean by that, so the other 30 to 35 pennies you have, you move them over to another section and that's the reservation. So there's really a misconcept that all Indian or all native or all indigenous people live on reservations when technically they don't. So that's always one of those stereotypes that just because you're native that you live on a reservation. But again, looking at stereotypes, we have to be careful, particularly as young kids um, growing in, going into grade school and then moving on to high school and then going into your college experience, 
you have to think about these types. And for myself as a native person, as a native educator, and, and sharing my experiences with you, uh, stereotypes is not a good thing. But it's something we can learn from. And as a teacher myself, I always tell students, you know, we have to uh, be aware of how you act, how you talk, at least to some degree. And it might, be, might happen. Your parents might have that some attitude that's different in yours. You might have a teacher or a friend. And again, that's one of those, those uh, concepts, I think, as a fourth grader, fifth grader, and as you grow older, to start thinking about. And that's what I'm doing with this video. I just want to give you a, a little Native perspective on what I mean about what stereotypes are. So that is one example of the many that come from the work of the Kessler Keener Foundation. And that, um, you know, obviously that was a framework from Phil um, specific for our youth, for our younglings, but that also can be very much applied to us adults. Um, though, do you want to speak a little bit uh, about? Um, the current work and anything else you'd like to say about Kessler Keener and then we'll go back over to Edward and share a little peek into colorizing restorative justice. Sure. Thank you. You sound much better. Thanks for oh, that. Okay, mm -hmm. good. Um, yeah. We have uh, 10 segments of Phil Allen and we have 15 segments of high school and um, young adult uh, young people from uh, most of the reservation or reservation areas in the state. And we'll be adding to that in this next year. Um, so when we talked to, to the, the young people and recorded them, we asked them what their passion was, what they wanted to tell uh, people that are non-natives about native youth life. What, what life as a youth is, a youth person, what they're engaged with. And then we also asked them to, to uh, share what they wished that uh, non-native people would know. Uh, and several of those would, was that um, they're, they're uh, young people growing up and they would like to be recognized for that and um, not be discriminated against. In addition, um, uh, we, when we're able to meet in person, we have uh, we do a mentor artist playwright project uh, on Boise State University campus during the summertime at Upward Bound, in which the young people and we um, have always had uh, some of the class being from Duck Valley, uh, Shoshone and Paiute um, young people. Uh, it, during a one-week period of time, they're able to write uh, a one-act, two-character play using metaphor. And we found with the, the young uh, students from uh, Duck Valley that they will often use their uh, indigenous native um, symbols and uh, characters in their, their dramas, their plays. And then those those uh, plays are read in performance readings by professional actors. So we always have a performance or, or two at the end of the, the week's time. Professional actors come in 
working with the students who have written, the student who's written the play, they will read these in front of an audience. We've been able to take those same plays with professional actors to Duck Valley and share with uh, the Owyhee School, the whole student body. We've had really, um, uh, uh, really open arms to bring this kind of enrichment to the students in Duck Valley and to work with the, the classes in um, uh, dramatic interpretation and uh, imagination. Uh, in the past, we've also uh, held a yearly um, native, non-native retreat in um, a forest location north of Boise. It's a time of fellowship and sharing food together and sharing stories. Um, and let's see. Oh, COVID has also um, offered the opportunity to have two book clubs a week, reading um, brown and black authors. And uh, we've been doing that for, for over two years, almost three years now. And so that's how we came to, to uh, read Edward's book. We're still in the middle of that. It's, uh, we, we, uh, we go very slowly in our reading, uh, sharing um, a chapter at a time, or it, in Edward's book is more like a third of a chapter a week. Um, and we, we created two mini libraries that are in suitcases of children's, the best in uh, uh, children's book of black and brown authors and illustrators. And those uh, go around in the community, a family can reserve those up to two weeks uh, to, to um, read together uh, to, to learn about the experiences of um, young people. Jingle Dancer is one of those books that's in our, in our little library. We call it the Little Library for Social Justice. And another one is um, A New Year's Reunion. So those are, are books that um, are about a, a variety of, of ethnic persons um, in the United States and, and other places in the world. So that's what we do is, uh, and, and the, the uh, foundation's purpose is to um, provide opportunities for uh, indigenous people and people who are often marginalized to share their truth, to share their stories. Um, and so um, we we've, are very fortunate to have a very talented uh, board of directors that are working board that um, are passionate about this, this mission. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ed. And um, just know that we're no, I am noticing as your host, the chat comments, and we are gonna be coming to those. Um, we're gonna turn to Edward, and I'd like to read his, uh, just an excerpt from the um, compilation, Colorizing Restorative Justice, and to ground us a bit in um, as a host of a, a podcast, my inspiration, also as a practitioner and a person of privilege and responsibility, I was so moved by Edward's chapter. 
and it is a urgent call <laughs> that everybody should read, especially, of course, white-bodied settler persons in across the world. Um, there's parts of that chapter that, like Ed was saying, need to be digested um, very carefully and conscientiously, and, and preferably in a group. So anyway, um, Edward says uh, from the introduction of Colorizing Restorative Justice, the 20 authors of color in this book raise unsettling issues about restorative justice and restorative practices also um, referred to as RJRP or RJP, situated as they are in white supremacist settler societies that sustain deep roots in European invasion and colonizing. The contradiction between restorative practices and the Western white supremacist settler societies in which we practice them is inherent. We people of color and indigenous peoples have not created the contradiction. It is there, but we collectively experience this contradiction in ways whites do not. Let me just say that again. But we collectively experience this contradiction in ways whites do not. Feel an urgency about addressing this contradiction that our white settler colleagues seemed not to perceive or express. We also feel an urgency about critically informing communities of color and indigenous communities that this contradiction, while not of our making or choosing, one we negotiate in restorative justice. So Edward, I just would love to bring you back here. Um, thanks for your presence and your wisdom and your sense of humor, even amidst such a, a thick and heavy uh, topic that we have at hand tonight. Let's dive in. Okay. Um... <clears throat> Molly always seems to find those excerpts that really um, make me think, okay, I wrote that. What did I really mean by that? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I think when I talk about uh, the, the contradictions, they were created by settlers and not by us. And so those contradictions are so uh, ongoing because settler colonialism is very resilient. It can adapt as, you know, as it needs to. So I, you know, one of the things I appreciated about my Nez, Nez Pierce relative, Phil, talking about the stereotypes. I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg. We can, we can <clears throat> look at, uh, and I liked his uh, analogy of, you know, um, Sitting like an sitting like an Indian, and I think those kind of things can be pointed out. But there's a there's a whole settler worldview that that supports the, those kind of stereotypes. So it's more than just uh, pointing out you know the various stereotypes like you know natives can't hold their liquor, um, natives work good with their hands there's a whole narrative that supports those kind of stereotypes. So it's one thing to point them out and, and call people on them, but it's another thing to maybe dive deeper and say, why do those persist? And how structural are they? 
And so I think that I, those are the contradictions that we that we um, experience and have to deal with. Um, so, you know, as an indigenous person, um, I am always <laughs> profoundly amazed when those contradictions just jump out. Uh, and for example, and this all has to do with the first harm, settlers and restorative justice, land acknowledgement. <clears throat> I remember sitting watching the Capitol riots or the insurrection as it's been called about a year or so ago. And the narrative that I kept hearing from the talking heads, a lot of settlers was how sacred some of those spaces are, the Capitol, the White House, and you know the iconic images of, of uh, settler colonialism. And I was struck by how settlers were saying how sacred that space is and yet was being desecrated. And for me, I was thinking, well, we would, as, as Lakota people, I can't speak for every native nation in the Western hemisphere, but as far as Lakota people are concerned, I said, we would never do that. We would never desecrate a sacred space. Not at all. And yet that, that epitomizes what land acknowledgements are. That epitomizes what the first term is that settlers think nothing of desecrating sacred spaces, sacred sites, um, and disrupting you know, the spiritual traditions of indigenous peoples, particularly my own. So I sit there with that contradiction and go like, do they even understand what sacred spaces are, sacred places are, sacred sites? I, it almost seemed just more rhetorical than anything as to emphasize a point. But I, I, I felt uh, to my bones that I know as Lakotas, we would never do that. We would never desecrate our sacred sites, our sacred places. Um, that, would, that would be unheard of. And yet when settlers were desecrating our own created sacred sites, I felt that, well, I knew that I knew, I knew they do that all the time. I mean, that's the narrative that, that we have to, to live with. And I think sometimes land acknowledgements try to understand that very superficially, but not um, maybe intuitively uh, what that really means. So those are the kind of things that me as, you know, a Lakota person um, being in the belly of the settler uh, beast, I, I, look at, I look at those kind of things that transpire and, and I try to make sense of it. And it's very hard for me to make sense of that. Um, so um, that's, that was one thing I wanted to share with people on that, that stereotypes are one thing but there's something deeper and systemic that feeds those stereotypes. And I think we have to be very aware of what 
what narrative is being um, promoted in settler narratives. And I think that's, um, I think that's the, that's the first step of at least becoming conscious of, of the harms that have been created. And I call it the first harm, the theft, the theft of indigenous lands. <clears throat> so I wanted to push that boundary in that particular chapter. Um, you know, wh what does it mean to have settlers and restorative justice? In, in itself, a contradiction, right? A, a, a dilemma not created by indigenous peoples or people of color, but created by the settlers themselves. So settlers often find themselves on the horns of these dilemmas that are self-created. And that's what we have to live with. And we have to negotiate that space. And, and so, um, so these are observations that I, I think I make about um, the US settler society and try to understand you know, what the full breadth and depth of those contradictions mean to us as indigenous peoples and peoples of color. And have a dialogue with settlers to say, what's up with that? There's a couple pieces that you shared just now that really struck, um, well, they all strike deeply and importantly so. Um, one of them is in regards to the narrative uh, underneath the stereotypes, Edward. And um, can I call you Hokshila? Or do, is it Wanshbli? You can, you can call me Edward. <laughs> okay, well, I love, I love your actual name. It's extraordinarily um, appropriate, I think. So. Well, I, I, appreciate, I do appreciate it. But the, the full name is Wambli Wapaha Hokshila. So if you can handle that mouthful. Wambli Wapaha Hokshila. Yeah, there you go. I'll keep trying because that's important. So, but my question is for, um, for the sake of settlers um, doing something right away, even though um, we also have a lot of work to do with our consciousness, as you've already explained explicitly um, in regards to sacred sites and what is sacred. Um, so it's a consciousness question, but there's also actions that we can take. Um, I know Ed has been contemplating that for a long time as a settler. So I'd like to just dive in um, briefly about this, this piece. So for example, if we're going into schools um, like Phil does and, and the Kessler Keener Foundation does um, with um, Native Voices, um, how do we take um, actions to redirect narrative very explicitly? Is it a land acknowledgement that we can do that says it's stolen land? It's not just land, it's stolen land. Or what, what are your thoughts on that? And I'll, I'll, we'll come to you, Ed, in just a moment on that. Which, which, which Ed? Oh. <laughs> We're still with you. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Oh, okay. Thank you. Um, I think, I think, you know, I think, um, well, I feel that land acknowledgements and um, other kind of actions like that, um, 
contest the, ser the, the settler narrative of impermanence mm -hmm. of indigenous peoples. Because the logic of settler colonialism, which is also called the logic of elimination, is the disappearance of indigenous peoples. So, so if people make, make explicit actions like who this land belongs to, and, and we have to understand that we are still the true owners of this land, regardless of what has happened. And because land is stolen, and, and as I said in, in the book, stolen property is considered a crime. Still, and so, so North America is one major crime scene. That, that, so saying, saying who, who this land belongs to it, it is a reality that, that challenges the, the settler notion of, of the logic of elimination, the disappearance of indigenous peoples. And so the narrative is really, um, settler narrative is, is just very potent, but it's very fragile. So as, as we begin to make indigenous peoples more permanent, for example, you saying my name, there are a lot of settlers that just struggle with that because I'm saying this is who I am. And, and so it's easier for settlers to say my white name than it is my Lakota name, who I'm known back home as. But I think that's a good exercise for settlers to, to wrestle with, with that, because that, that denotes permanence on my part, which, which unsettles settlers, because the narrative is the disappearance of indigenous people. So actions that are explicit, that acknowledge native permanency, is one way of doing that. Thank you so much, Wanjbe Wampaha Bokshila. And um, let's turn over to you, Ed. And then um, I would just want to thank Catherine and others in, in the um, chat also. Catherine, you, you asked uh, along these lines, how do we make the impo importance of land acknowledgements made clear to occupiers? So we can hold that. Good question. And Ed, yeah, there you go, you're unmuted. Well, that scares the shit out of uh, white people, you know. <laughs> and actually we deserve, we deserve that because we've, we've, uh, we've earned it to have the shit scared out of us. Um, I think uh, a lot of reading and understanding uh, that what uh, black and brown people are saying, what native people are saying is extremely important. And that's, that is definitely one of the, the um, areas that is hard for white people to do. They, they, um, they use a lot of excuses for, for uh, not having time to read uh, history and uh, not acknowledging uh, feelings and, and uh, stories of people that are not white. So that's one thing. 
I don't know if this second, this next idea is doable, but um, I, I recommend that um, a lot of white people have a lot of wealth. They have portfolios, they have property um, and their children, if they have any, are pretty well set up. So their children don't, don't need that inheritance. To have that inheritance uh, go to, and this is where I, uh, uh, I don't have any, really any experience, but have it go to um, a, a tribe or reservation in your state um, to, to begin the conversation with uh, whoever it is in tribal government that uh, could receive such a, such a gift. Uh, that's wrong to receive back the property that belongs. Um, I think that could have a lot of power <clears throat> in, in um, when once people start doing that. Um, the, the, uh, I live on three, three acres of unceded land and uh, was put in a trust by my parents. We're now in negotiation with uh, the land trust of Treasure Valley and um, indigenous peoples uh, to receive that land so that it can be, become um, Boise Valley Indigenous Interpretive Center or park. With the, the point being that uh, native people will decide what, what is gonna be featured in, on this three acres of land um, what kind of interpretation is important, how um, anyone can, can be present, um, and as a place where uh, there isn't any place in Boise Valley that is owned, currently owned by Native people. So that's still in, in the early stages of trying to figure out how that's going to work. But uh, the trustees of, this, of the Keener Trust are very excited about um, this possibility. And Native people will be the ones who make the decisions about how, how it's going to be used. Um, so we, we already have uh, a Native woman who is uh, the director of this project, and uh, she is making contact with others. Um, of the Paiute and uh, Shoshone uh, peoples to uh, form a, a group that's going to um, make this a reality. Ed, I would like to just ask, um, is there a place where people can find more um, regarding your libraries and resources? Uh, I know you're on Facebook. YouTube. Yeah, yeah, on Facebook. Um, and it's the Kessler Keener Foundation.org. We, what, uh, when we rolled out, when we rolled out the videos, we added the word foundation. So it's the whole thing, Kessler Keener Foundation, and we um, deactivated our previous website. And that's why I had a little trouble tonight. My, my apologies. So yeah. Let me Just put that, I'll, I'll put it in the, the chat of where you can get information about the little libraries. 
Okay, great. And at this moment, I just would like to open up to the group and do an, a special honoring. I know Phil Allen just arrived in the room and just want to honor and shout out to everybody involved in cross-cultural dialogue, um, the contributors to Colorizing Restorative Justice. Um, is anybody here tonight uh, with us that is a contributor to Colorizing Restorative Justice? Of course, we have Edward Wanbli Wapaha Hokshila with us. But if you are a contributor and you'd like to voice in, we'd love to hear from you also tonight. Um, Phil and anyone with the Kessler Keener projects um, up in the Northwest and Rockies. Anyone here tonight from there? Phil, did you want to introduce yourself? I'm going to put you on the spot. Hey, everybody. So great to have you here. Right, you put me on the spot. <laughs> hey, no problem. <laughs> I almost forgot because the time changes because I'm in, uh, it's, it's different for me here where I live at. Uh, compared to like Boise and other places. But yeah, I, I, I wanted to say hello to everybody and um, up here in, in Lapway, Idaho on an Espers reservation. And if you've, uh, I've been involved with Kina Castle for about, I don't know, 10, 11 years now, I think, Ed. I met Ed a few years ago. I was one of the first keynote speakers for the series that his uh, foundation does down there in Boise. And we've been friends over the hey, years. Hey, Phil, and, I'm sorry to interrupt, been, but people want to see your face. No, I don't like that. I'm looking all funky right now. So, <laughs> yeah, I've been asked that. What a professor will do to you. <laughs> I, always get, I always get like that all the time because I've been a you know, college teacher for 20 some years. And so I, I don't, I, I kind of got used to Zoom, but. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I mean, my laying on my bed in my room, I'm getting ready. We just had an uh, elder pass away, so I'm waiting for my friend to get back to pick me up. So I wanted to at least uh, chime in with you all and, and uh, let you know I'm here. But uh, yeah, it's been really interesting to be able to work on various projects like the Native Voices Projects and then uh, doing the uh, helping along with my colleagues down there in Boise area. Uh, with the different books that we're that we're that we're reading and looking at and trying to understand, and a lot of times I'm the only person of color um, in these groups sections. If uh, some of my other colleagues can't make it, and it's it's nice, you know, it's nice to have um, non-native people uh, able to dial in and ask me questions. And I've been at like I said, I've been a college teacher for twenty some years. So it's been really nice to be able to kind of get back to you. And I haven't taught since 2008 at Washington State University. So I'm hoping to get back into it. But of course, you guys all know COVID has really kind of changed how we do things anymore. We're, we're again, um, here in my little town of Lapu, which is just over a thousand people, families are getting hit left and right. And so it's, it's been really stressful. But again, I'm glad I got to come in and and, uh, and listen in for a little while and, and see how everybody's doing. And uh, this is hard work. You know, my doctor works in cultural studies and in social thought and education at, at, from Washington State. I'm still writing my dissertation. I'm taking my sweet time, <laughs> not in a big rush. Uh, but again, COVID is really really kind of put a hold on that for me and just trying to survive like everybody else. I mean, seriously, we, we our, our high school here, uh, they're contemplating shutting down because of uh, COVID getting hit uh, here. Uh, anyway, 
but yeah, I'm just that's I don't know if you don't know if you don't know who I am. I've been I've been a college teacher for like I said twenty some years, um, working on my dissertation uh, slowly. Seven going in seven years. <laughs> and we watched uh, your uh, we watched one of your videos um, as we opened up tonight. The the one on assumptions. Then we had a little okay. bit of discussion about that. Thank okay, you so cool. Much for, thank you so much for being here and heartfelt prayers to your relatives and family, um, to your loved ones, Phil. Appreciate it very much. Yeah, if you have any questions, I'm, I'm here for a little bit, so. Yeah, ch Maybe please chime back in too um, and, and get involved in, in the discussion. Okay, um, sounds good. We, uh, we actually had um, a little bit of a, a discussion here going in the chat about the term settler. And I noticed you said settler is not always used by all of us, just FYI. And Catherine asks, what are the other terms that are alternatives to settlers? Um, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, that's guys? interesting. When I, when I worked at Northwest Indian College many years ago, and we started the, uh, uh, the conference with Vine, De Vine Deloria when he was still alive, uh, it always seemed like the Canadians always used that term and not us down here in the United States, like a lot of us Native scholars, particularly here in the Northwest. So I always find that different um, to hear that term. I've never used it. I don't ever use it. It seems weird to hear that settler. And it just reminds me of my Canadian uh, uh, Native scholars up, up North who, who say that all the time because Canada and, and I, uh, United States are a little bit different, but um, not to take any power away from it. It's just something that I'm not used to. I've always used colonizer or colonists, or I just say white people or Europeans, you know, European. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't know if that makes sense or not, but it just, it just, that's, I don't know. It just, for me as a, a native scholar for all these years, I've never really used it. I just heard my, my Canadian and counterparts always use that term. They all say settlers and those kind of made me laugh because it kind of sounds different for me being from where I'm from and, and so I don't know. It's not a big deal, but I just want to—I just want to make it clear that not all of us use that term. I just—I just never grew up with it. So at least not from where I'm from here in Idaho. And Phil, um, I know that you may need to slip off in a bit. While we have you with us, um, would you like to share any um, memories, or whether it's far in the past? I know you and I worked together a bit with Ed up in Idaho uh, of the cross-cultural dialogues. And um, do you wanna say anything about what you think is most important for um, white-bodied people, our responsibility towards the first harm, acknowledgement, and, and even small steps that are really urgent that we, we might take? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a big, you know, we've been doing, most of us as Native scholars, we've done this all our lives, you know, from since I could remember, you know, late 60s, going to 70s, dealing with our white teachers, dealing with our white classmates, dealing with, you know, our white communities that, that, that live on around reservation and, and so on and so forth. But I think what needs to happen, and I think that's what Zoom has allowed a lot of us to be able to do and like these book clubs that uh, we get people who are non-native be able to read and, and talk about um, particular things and, and and it's a push and I think the colleges this is where I, I really miss teaching is that I've, I've taught at uh, five different colleges in my career and I've taught close to 35 different courses that I've either created or you know helped create new curriculum 
to teach classes and 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 it's not just people that non-natives i mean a lot of our native people are very unaware about treaty rights very unaware of what sovereignty really means they're very unaware of um you know the issues that uh i don't even like the term tribe but tribal groups as, as, as different peoples how we all deal with with the government and and I've always told and Ed knows this and all my colleagues from the Boise area know that you know who do we fight with the most is the states and people don't need to understand that the states uh, have a big um, influence on how the tribes are treated and again you know who the president is and who's in the who's in the supreme court all that affects us uh, every day in our lives and somehow in some way and I think my biggest thing is just trying to work with people uh, like I said, I, I miss being a teacher. I, I miss having that impact, you know, given and having a, a classroom where I'm, you know, talking about uh, all kinds of issues from identity to sovereignty to treaty rights to racism and racism, you know, in the, at Washington State, the cultural studies program, you know, critical race theory, we're all, we all become pretty well versed in it. That's one thing that uh, Wazoo had, uh, has taught me, at least anything I get out of it was the critical race stuff. And I look at tribal crit a lot um so i don't know if i'm making sense or not i'm just sitting there like think trying to think about you know what i would do and what we need to look at and how do we go about but i think education is 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 a priority i think the native voices project that we're doing i, I i'm getting people here in my hometown my home area said we would love you to come talk to us i'm talking like at churches you know all white churches and that to me that that's that's making a little bit progress because uh, i work in a traditions gift store down here in lewiston idaho and even though I'm not teaching per se, but I meet a lot of people and, they, and once they find out my background, they're all like really interested. A lot of retired teachers come in, they're looking at, you know, they ask me, well, what's your background? Why are you working in a gift shop? But the thing about working in traditions is part of the native Nespers tourism, where we have a lot of different aspects where we're sharing our, our culture and our histories and our knowledge and, and demonstrating, et cetera, et cetera, uh, to, the, to, to the public. And so in some way, I'm still teaching, maybe not in a classroom per se, but in a different way. So I don't know if that makes sense, if, if that's what you're asking me. <laughs> I'm just going to. Uh. <laughs> so I hope that helps. I just really appreciate you um, making the attempt to use a language that's very limiting, the English language, um, in what, what you're sharing tonight, Phil, and that you're here. It's so great to hear your voice. Wish we could see your face, but honoring voice and choice. Um, and uh, let's see here. I think what, what I'd like to do is just invite you, Phil, um, if you have to slip out, um, come back to us and interject, okay? We're gonna return um, back to Edward now. And we're really looking at uh, colorizing restorative justice as the framework for this conversation. So um, before we run out of time tonight, I really wanna honor um, a little bit more specific about it and return to, to um, Okay, Thank I'll be here as long as I can. Thanks. Thank you, dear. Okay, so I wanna just ground us a bit um, again. Um, we're talking about the first harm acknowledgement um, openly, honestly, in a, a, a very diverse group here. And it's a, a topic that needs to be transparently addressed um, with myself and Ed um, 
guiding this as white settlers in conjunction with Edward Wanbli Wapaha Hokshila. And in colorizing restorative justice, there are five parts. And um, how many of you by, out of curiosity, have the book, Colorizing Restorative Justice? Um, and just out of curiosity, how many of you are facilitators of dialogue and or restorative practitioners? All right. And like I mentioned, um, we're gonna be doing a drawing before we close tonight. And it's really important for us to get to your questions. So um, we're gonna go into that phase here shortly. Thank you for your hands up and for, for letting us know a bit about your background. Um, so the essays in Colorizing Restorative Justice um, fall into those five parts. And I, I'm gonna go ahead and read them. Um, and then Edward Onbli um, Wanbaha Hokshila, I'd like you to pick one of the areas to pack a bit with uh, with the rest of us. Would you be willing to do that? Of course, always All right. Always willing Here to we go. Okay, so I bet I can guess which one you're gonna pick, but I'll, I'm not gonna say anything. All right, so the first section is where are we? RJRP challenges and obligations. The second is negotiating RJRP as professionals of color. The third is POC experiences of RJ, RP, and circle work. The fourth, word of lessons from with the community. And finally, number five is a call to settlers in RJ. And just, by, just a side note, if I might, in, in planning this dialogue space tonight, I really wanted um, to empower a youth uh, BIPOC host. Unfortunately, they were not able to make it tonight, but they were and are from the College of Idaho. Um, and so I just, that's one of the things that as a settler, um, privileged person of, of uh, white bodiedness, I try and do all the time is to, to hand over um, the hosting of spaces or to share them appropriately um, with my colleagues and friends of color. Very important. Um, all right, so over to you, Wanbli Wapaha Hokshila. Which one are you choosing? Boy, you said that so fluently. You had me fooled for a second. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on it. It's important for obvious reasons. Well, I of course the, the I, I was going to go with with the fifth one. You know. Yeah. I, I really think that dialogue has to happen with um, indigenous peoples and settlers, whether it be a, be a land acknowledgement or not, or, or, you know, what is this, what is this phenomena that we're dealing with? And for, for the group that, that, that may not know my experience as the reason why I wrote this chapter was my, my wading into restorative justice. I would, I would of course sit, sit in some of these circles and hear about harms, 
And it was hard for me to sit in those circles as an indigenous person here about hearing about, let's say harms um, that may be individualized. Maybe someone uh, harmed someone's property or, or, or there was these, these very individual harms and trying to undo them. And yet I was always struck by the, again, by the contradiction or the, the dilemma in which, how in the world can we talk about these harms when the first harm has never really been talked about? And I wanted, I, that question burned with me so much that that's what I wrote about, like the first harm. Um, the theft of stolen native land. And, and the violence that, that has been associated with that theft that continues to this day. And so I, I, put, I put the moral question before settlers is like, it's hard for, again, you know, uh, um, I think Phil makes a good point. I don't speak for all indigenous peoples of North America and I don't even speak for all the indigenous peoples of my nation, but I do know one thing. I, I thought that um, the, the moral center of restorative justice is being hollowed out by, not, by settlers not addressing the first harm because all harms derive from that first harm, whatever, what, you know, um, so then it was, it was, it was, it was an attempt to bring an awareness to this issue of the first harms and the settlers' role in restorative justice of not addressing the first harm. It was like um, the the idea of I've heard like an elephant in the room, and, and no one was, and no one was really trying to address that, and it was probably not even on the radar. There's a there, and I have shared with Molly, I think, and there's some other people that might be on this call. A colleague of mine had a really good exercise, and I use it all the time to show how erasure of indigenous peoples is so prevalent in, in the settler society that it goes unnoticed. And that is, I would ask, and I probably would ask every one of you here, what's the first thing you do in the morning when you get out of bed? Well, I've done this exercise so many times, you know, um, that settlers would say, well, I run. First thing I do when I get out of bed, I shower, I read, I pray, I meditate. And, and I would say, well, I want to redirect that. I said, I know, I know what you do in the morning. The first thing you do in the morning when you get out of bed is you stand on stolen native land. That's the first thing you do every morning when you get out of bed. You, you stand on stolen native land. And that exercise can trigger so much settler fragility that I feel the violence from settlers. I mean, let's, settler colonialism is a very violent structure, you know? And it's, and it's so embedded in the narrative and then the language of how we use to talk about, how settlers talk about indigenous peoples. I mean, my gosh. 
And, and so to begin to deconstruct that language and those narratives triggers a lot of settler fragility. And, but why? And I think it's because what is antithetical to the settler narrative is the permanence of indigenous peoples. I can walk into a room of settlers and they all get scared because I will talk about land return. I will talk about sovereignty and control of our homelands. We have a lot of unceded land in my territory. And so I would raise those issues, but again, you know, um, it's dangerous to raise those issues out in my part of the country because you could get killed for talking about land return among the settlers in South Dakota. There, there could be violence against you. And that's a reality, particularly in this, in this environment that I've been witnessing since 2016. It is, it is, it is batshit crazy. <laughs> you know? And so as an indigenous person, you know, I, I, I think, well, you know, settler, colonial, settler colonialism, people have got to understand that it's a structure. It's not an event, it's a structure and it's a violent structure. And every time I step outside my door, I step into that environment of settler colonialism. I mean, a small community that I live in in South Dakota, yeah, to wear a mask, that's almost like challenging, um, you know, the anti-mask people or to wear a little button that says I'm vaccinated. You could, you could literally start fights out here. So it's a very toxic, very tense environment that we live in and this is what, so for indigenous people, it becomes even more tenuous because our permanence again signals the legitimacy of the settler presence in North America. And so, there, so there's a lot of um, dynamics that let's say I would understand, but the settlers don't understand. They, they experience, they feel it but they may not know why they're feeling it because the structure has inculcated a certain narrative that once, it, once, it's, once it's challenged, people get triggered. And so it's, you know, it, it's, um, it's a very disturbing phenomenon to watch and to experience. And it's, and it's real, I kid you not. You know, violence against indigenous peoples is the norm. Um, our relatives up in Canada, the missing and murdered indigenous women. Um, and in the States, missing and murdered indigenous women in the States, the boarding school experiences, the residential experiences up in Canada. Those, those, those aspects are those, those, phenomena are geared so, solely to the disappearance of indigenous peoples by hook or by crook. And so that is where the dialogue gets real with settlers. We say, all right, this is what we've been experiencing. Um, and 
And this, this is a real phenomenon to us as indigenous peoples. So we're calling on some accountability. We're calling on some kind of um, acknowledgement that this structure, again, it's a structure, it's not an event. It's ongoing. And so, so to sit in circles of a thing called restorative justice with settlers and hear them talk about undoing harms, the contradictions just hit me like, well, why don't you undo the first harm? Because every harm that we experience today resulted from that first harm. And so that's where we need to start looking to focus our attention to that. And let me tell you, it, it is a very difficult space to, to negotiate. I, I kid you not. There's a thing called, we've heard of white fragility. There's a thing called settler fragility. And that is almost DNA deep in settlers because you're, 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 you're questioning the narrative and in ways challenging the narrative. And native permanence is antithetical to settler colonialism. And so anytime native people assert some kind of thing like sovereignty, land return, uh, language revitalization, those things that denote native permanence, there's a visceral reaction by settlers because we're challenging the whole settler project just by doing those kind of behaviors and those actions. And that's got to stop. Because I don't think anyone that's watching this, that's on this webpage, I don't think anyone truly wants to embrace genocide of indigenous peoples. So that's where the dialogue has to start and begin. Um, and it's and it's a and it's a societal society-based um, uh, project in which, you know. Um, it, it, it's somewhat analogous to those people who um, are against the death penalty. Like the death penalty is done in the name of the people. So you don't have to necessarily pull the switch. You just have to be the people that condone that kind of uh, punishment. Same with settler colonialism. <sighs> You're, at, you're not maybe necessarily at the switch, but the behaviors, the policies, the laws, the attitudes make everyone culpable. And that's what we got to really try to um, drill down to. And it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be comfortable. It's, it's, it's downright hard when we get to that, that discussion where it gets real. And... That's the motivation for the chapter, was to start this kind of dialogue that is so needed, um, given what we're experiencing and witnessing in the 21st century. And there's hope. Hey, Ed. Hey, hey, guys, I have to go here soon. Um, Ed, I, can I just real quick, I just want to add to, to what you're saying. And, I, and it's, anyway, 
I think what Ed and all my Boise colleagues, when they hear some of the things I talk about daily, and you were correct. The first thing I get up in the morning, I drink my water and I think, okay, now I have to drive to town. And I tell my stories about the white cops. They're just, just horrible here. They're just so damn hateful. And I don't understand why. I mean, I do in some senses, but uh, I'm going into Lewiston right now, which is about 15 miles from here. And because our casino is right on the border between Lewiston and Lapway. And, you know, it's so they're just. The things that you're talking about, like North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, Idaho, the states that we live in, I mean, just the whole idea, the narrative about, you know, land acknowledgement, University of Idaho, Washington State, those are part of an LCSC, Lewis Clark State College, they're all part of our, 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 in our homelands. And it's been years and years. I started college back in the 80s, and I remember how hateful it was for us to be in classes, being the only Native student in a class at University of Idaho for my bachelor's and my master's. A lot of times, we got a lot of hate, even from faculty members. Not, not just students and, and admin and saying, oh, and they'd get upset because, oh, we don't want to talk about the Nest Purse and, and the Nimipu and acknowledge that we're in their homelands, you know, and I'm, I'm a sitting there. And of course, everybody turns around, and looks at you, and next thing you know, you're, you know, everybody looks at you, me, and like, God, why is he here? And blah, 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 you know. And, and that same thing when you become a teacher, when I was te- teaching at these various colleges that where most of my students are 100% white, you know, why, how do, how do I navigate? Uh, teaching about certain things, particularly if it's historical, because I teach political science, history, native studies. I can go on a lot of different the stuff that I teach, and it's very frustrating. And it's and sometimes, like you said, it's scary. I mean, I have gotten beaten up by cops. I've been cussed at by cops. I've been attacked by white folks here on the reservation, not 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 just off the reservation, but on. That's the reality that a lot of us live in. And then how do we? And then even as educators are we going to educate you know how many times i've gotten attacked at, at various conferences i've been to talking about certain whatever topic we need to be talking about and you know and then they they uh, kind of boo you or they talk to you afterwards and they're just rude and you're just like oh really you're you have phd and you're at this you know nice college and blah 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 and then but they still attack you because they they do have that settler and colonist that white privilege that that fragility that you're talking about See that every day. I, I can't I don't I quit going on to our local news stuff because every time they post something online, whatever reason it may be, and you get attacked. You know, this is right here in my little home my, where I live at. You know, I live in Lapa and we're about half and half, half white, half, you know, Nest Purse. But you go off into Lewiston and then go across the bridge in Lewiston, go to Clarkson, Washington. I mean, it's not like you're overly, but you see all, but you feel all the microaggressions all the time when they look at you and, and stuff. Even when I taught at Lewis Clark State College, it was always, boy, I had students complain about me and I was like, oh, he talks too much about that Indian stuff or that native stuff, you know, and you, and it's frustrating because I'm like, hey, I'm just telling the truth here. You want to know where you're at. You want to know history. This is what I'm trying to teach you. And it's very frustrating. So, and I, I appreciate that your words and everybody that's listening. I hope, um, you know, we can always keep moving forward. And again, I'm here as a resource, uh, you know, just email me, text me. Ed has all my information. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm planning to do more work and I'm, I'm going to try to get my dissertation done. I'm going to go back to class. I get, keep asking to come back to teach, but I'm so scared of COVID because we've lost so many here in my little hometown. And it's like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm scared to go face to face. I'm even scared to go and listen much. I don't know. I, I have not been in a restaurant restaurant maybe twice in the last three years where I actually sat sat down in a restaurant 
because it's so rampant here. And then living in Idaho with our governor, Brad Little, who's, ah, uh, he's horrible because my, my poor niece, Paulette Jordan, I wish she would have won. We probably would have had, it probably, we would have probably put a stop to this COVID. Um, well, maybe not a stop, but we would have slowed it down. But anyway, I'm talking fast. My friend's outside waiting. We're, we're going to go visit the family who lost their, their family member or my relative and uh, uh, keep doing a good work, everybody. And I hope you all stay healthy. And, and again, uh, keep the faith. You know, uh, I've been doing this for a long time. And, I, and it, it, there's days where I want to give up. But then I think, well, if I do, then who's going to fight the fight? And sometimes you just have to, uh, you know, pray. You know, I, I and, and I saw my friend Chris put on there about my dancing. You know, my I miss it so much. COVID took that away from me for almost three years. I didn't get to put my outfit on and go dance and sing and pray and you know all that. And I did that at Pendleton. But guess what? There was forty eight cases of COVID, and I luckily didn't get it again. So it's like ah, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. But Anyway, I want to wish you all a, a good good evening and, and continue with the good work. And uh, again, contact me if you have any questions uh, for me, particularly with the videos or any of the work that I do. Um, uh, hey, Phil, anyway, my buddy, can you put your email in there? What's that? Would you mind, um, of course, with your permission, would you share your email in the chat for everybody tonight before okay. you leave? Would that be okay? I, I, I will do that. Okay, I'll do that before I go. So, but anyway, take care, everybody. I'm glad I got to chime in for a little bit. Thank you for all you guys do, and thanks for listening. Thank you, Phil. Great to hear from you. Thank you, Phil. Mm. It's about time to really, uh, truly honor a full sense of participation with you all tonight. Um, so if you would like to voice in with questions, or I know there's quite a lot going on in the chat. Um, so let's just um, place that intention here in a moment. Um, I'm trying to catch up and honor um, people who've asked questions earlier tonight too. So thanks for your patience. Um, I wanna just ask both of you, Ed, and Wambli Wapaha Hokshila, is there anything you want to add that has not been said and shared before we, we open up a little bit more with uh, the larger group? Um, I, I've been kind of watching the, the chat and there's really a lot of good um, statements being made. Um, so, I think that's often a, a good start. And um, this, this journey is not easy, of course. And, um, but yeah, I, I, think, I think certain reckonings are beginning to manifest themselves um, through things like Black, Black Lives Matter and some of these other things that are transpiring um, <clears throat> as we approach the middle of this century. And so it's, critical to have these kind of dialogues um, about how, how society can transform itself uh, because it's necessary. And um, so I, I, like, I like the statements. I, I'm reading uh, the statements on the chat and really appreciate them. Um, and I wondered, 
you have a, a really powerful email signature that I think I talked to you briefly about. Um, would you be okay if I put that in the chat section? Would, or if, if we read that? There's a question from somebody about it, or would that not be quite appropriate tonight? No, I, I don't mind it, uh, but, but oh yeah, go ahead and put it on there because I was gonna say okay. why, why I did it that way as opposed okay. to, so, so, so um, I, I've read a lot of land acknowledgements and I thought, okay, this is my land acknowledgement from an indigenous voice. And so if you wanna put it up there and have everyone look at it, talk about it, fine, I'm good with it. I'm trying to do that right now. So while I'm doing that, um, let's just uh, go back to you, Ed, and just check in and see if there's anything else that you wanted to make sure is known and shared tonight um, before really opening it up to the larger circle. Sure, thank you. Um, in terms of reading, what's really helped me, and I think uh, uh, the other white people in our reading groups is uh, uh, Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. And there's also a youth version um, that's edited by uh, two, two um, different, two other um, Native women that is, as, uh, both of those are really excellent. And we've also found that reading um, Black history, such as um, Stamp from the Beginning, Ibram Kendi, um, and other uh, books by both Black and Brown authors are, are really, really helpful to understand how they connect, um, to get a, a much clearer picture and understanding of um, this violence that, that came upon this continent, upon, upon people. Um, so that, that's one thing. The other is in terms of land acknowledgement, what we found um, was that not only to acknowledge the land, but to, to also acknowledge the violence of how the land was taken in this particular spot. So ours, it has a common theme with other places in the US, but ours is particular in terms of who is involved. So um, that's what we've included on our land acknowledgement uh, on the Kessler Keener website. Thank you so much, Ed. Um, I just, I, I hope this wasn't interruptive to your stream of sharing, um, nope. but I, I'm putting this up uh, for everybody to see. Um, this is the land acknowledgement from Wanbli Wampaha Hochla in his email. And uh, did you wanna say anything about that? Uh, maybe I should read it. Yeah. Uh, that would be amazing. Please okay. do. Okay, this is the indigenous land acknowledgement. And, the, and I put this on my email signature because people are starting to do that now. And um, so, so I say, greetings from my homeland, the Ocheti Shakoi Oyate Makoche, 
Our homeland is where our relatives come from, where our relatives live, and where our relatives love and defend each other. To coexist with our relatives is a difficult responsibility, but one made more so ever since settlers invaded our homelands. Settlers, among other things, have nearly exterminated our relative, the Tatanka Oyate, the Buffalo people. Compared to 150 years ago, few of them survive today. Settlers have enclosed our relative, Mini Oyate, or the Water Nation, or some people have heard about Mini Wichoni. There are several structures built on the Mini Sose that like bondage can constrain uh, their natural life-giving flow. And that's the dams built on the Missouri River. Uh, that's what we call Minnesota. Settlers have drilled into our relative, Unchimaka, which is another, translated means Mother Earth or Grandmother Earth. The drilling has left our Grandmother Earth with notable scars, Mount Rushmore, Crazy Horse Monument, Homestake Mine, Dakota Access Pipeline, and abandoned radiation testing sites. Settlers have illegally colonized and therefore unlawfully reside in our homeland. We have never consented to these and other colonizer-led harms. Hence, the litmus test of any land acknowledgement is, right, is the rightful return of stolen native land. I wrote that because I got sick and tired of reading all these benign indigenous land acknowledgement statements that amounted to nothing but performative rhetoric. Where's the action? So my statement says, the litmus test for land acknowledgement is return of stolen native land. That's an action. That's what I felt was important, was to set a framework and example of what indigenous land acknowledgement should be, not just performative and empty rhetoric, but there has to be some action for that. So, um, so I wrote that from, as, as a Lakota person whose homeland is, is, is occupied by settlers. And, and, and again, that kind of statement reasserts our permanence in this narrative of, 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 this, of, the, of settler colonialism or the settler narrative where we're interrupting it, we're unsettling the settlers by such statements. So that's a very, strong act and I was very nervous putting that out because we got crazy people running around in this country <laughs> but it's a risk we all take risks right so um so I wanted to make something very definitive about how I feel what I would say about an indigenous land acknowledgement and not be so benign about it a call to action. If I may, from my perspective, thank you so much for that and for reading it. Um, wow. Um, and by the way, this will be posted out to you uh, as a recording and a video recording for you to pass along and to keep and download. Please do so freely. And also, um, the thought came to me that since we haven't had enough dialogue with all of you quite yet, and we have 25 minutes remaining, that we'll do the drawing and report that to you for the books um, post event. So you'll hear from Restorative Justice on the Rise with an update 
and an announcement of the book winners. Hope that works for everybody. Um, I, I wanted to just share that I feel a real responsibility to be very specific with that word stolen in my own land acknowledgement and my thoughts about where I'm sitting right now and when I wake up in the morning, how important it is to use the word stolen because that is unsettling, right? In, in and of itself, at least in my personal and humble experience. So that's my practice um, for what it's worth. I wanna acknowledge Catherine. Um, she's put in a lot of uh, really thoughtful comments tonight. Catherine, did you wanna voice in um, whether camera on or off or would you like your thoughts, uh, questions to be read on your behalf? And welcome, Catherine. Thank you for your participation. Hi. Uh, hey. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm more than happy to be here. I um, I think for me, I as a practitioner and as a professional in this field, I am really struggling with this this importance and. I am looking for guidance. I, I'll probably start crying here. I, I, I am really looking for guidance. I, I just wanna make sure that we are absolutely paying attention to all of this. And I've been in the field for a long time and I, I'm just not sure that I'm doing it right. I guess is the way I would say. I, I'm not sure I'm doing it right. And I am really concerned that for my organization, which has been around for a long time, that we're not in some kind of academic space where we're trying to like acknowledge all these different things. And, but that we really are real with our work. And I, and I actually uh, submitted a um, private message to Molly saying like, I'm just questioning everything with my work. I really am. I've been doing this for a long time and I am just questioning everything right now around like, am, am I really being real with this work? And I, I, I've done a lot of, you know, consulting training, implementation support with criminal justice and um, schools and school districts. And we've been around for a long time, but I'm at a juncture where I'm just really questioning everything. So that's all I'll say. Thank you for being willing to voice in, Catherine. It's good to see you. Um, would you like to hear from our guests tonight or from anyone else who would like to add? Absolutely. All right. Go ahead, please. Well, I think as a white person, I, and um, I think it's important to question everything. And I certainly have questioned um, what I did as a teacher, elementary teacher, and then as a pastor. And I have lots of regrets. And so I'm trying to spend the, my last years in um, trying to change 
change some of those narratives um, and challenge the, the injustice now that I know more of the truth, more of the theft, more of the stolen labor. Um, and, and to see how those are connected into my own community, that, um, that the struggles that we're having in, our, in, in Boise, Idaho, um, around a homeless shelter that wants to move to a larger facility, but um, the entitled um, white people in the neighborhood is an adjacent have decided this doesn't fit in there. These kind of people don't belong here. So it's, it's just a con another connection. And it's a hard place to be, of course. It doesn't, it, it doesn't feel good to, to um, but I mean, I guess you could say, so what? Well, can, can, I I just, can I just say, though, that I really am looking for like practical suggestions for how to incorporate these questions in my work, because I do this work on many different levels. I do it in criminal justice and community justice and schools and school districts. And I'm like looking for my level of responsibility around that. And I need guidance around how do I incorporate this into the work that I do that might deal with like specific incidences and, you know, that are focused on that. So I, 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 I guess I'm just looking for guidance. Edward. Catherine, may I, may I make a suggestion? Um, one thing that I try to get uh, settlers to understand is that um, not all, but a lot of indigenous nations have these agreements, what are called treaties, not with the United States. Technically, that's true. United States acted on your behalf as our leaders acted on my behalf. So we are treaty people. That's where you start. So if you're in my, if you're in South Dakota, North Dakota, Nebraska, Wyoming, Colorado, I would tell, I would suggest start reading the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty and get to know that as your Bible. Wow. Understand what the what that language is, because we are treaty people. You and I are if you were in my homeland. That's the basis of our relationship. And it talks about everything. Describes our homelands. And then that it says that land is for our undisturbed use and occupancy, and no white people shall ever be in that homeland unless it's by our consent. So the question you can start asking people, for example, in, in this case that I'm talking about is, if white people are not supposed to be in our homelands, why are you here? So for the white settlers in South Dakota, you are probably the most undocumented people are the poster child for undocumented immigrants. We never invited you into our homelands. So you have to start saying, oh my gosh, what does that mean then? 
I mean, so if you look at the language of those treaties and really say, this is our, this, whatever area, because there's over 400 and some treaties made between indigenous peoples and the Americans. And that's what the level you got to get down to. So I say, we are treaty people. We, you, you made treaties with us. In almost 99% of the cases, settlers came to us and wanted to negotiate a treaty. We didn't come to the settlers. And you have to understand that's the, that's the political relationship. We are nations, occupied to be sure, colonized to be sure. But, but one thing you can't take away from people is their sovereignty. It's inherent. And so that's where you have to begin and read, the, and read the treaty with respect to your area. There might be more than one and read that document. And I'll guarantee you, you'll find plenty to talk about. So I hear everything you're saying, I really do. And my question to you is, if I am like working with a case and restorative justice where there's like specific harm in my community and I, there are people of different, there's like people of color, there are, how do I make sure to bring in these first harms and historical harms into my dialogue around specific harms that are taking place in real time? I think that's my question is like, how do I make sure that I incorporate the first harms in my dialogue around the present harms that I'm dealing with in my restorative justice process, you know, in my restorative justice facilitated process. That's the part I'm really struggling with. Like, how do I, how do I make sure that these harms are brought into and acknowledged as part of my process around whatever incident I'm dealing with. Well, I would say when you look at it on a one-to-one -one basis, you're in the weeds on the harm. It's a one-to-one -one harm, if you will. But one could say the first harm has led to so many other harms that you're, that you're, that you're processing at that point. And just to make that acknowledgement that these harms that people are experiencing today as a result of the initial harm and somehow make that connection there. I mean, that's a suggestion. It's, a, it's, a, it, it's going from being, it's going from just a one-to-one -one harm, trying to undo the harm and just giving it a structure or a framework to say, these harms that don't happen in a vacuum. There's a lot of different other things that transpire that actually come from the first harm. And we might as well talk about the second harm, which is enslaved peoples who incidentally are indigenous. The enslaved people are indigenous peoples of Africa. So the indigenous connection is throughout and it's a violent structure. So, so some maybe broader framework to situate those individual harms. I don't know, that's just a suggestion. Well, so what I hear you saying that as a facilitator, that would be our responsibility to acknowledge that 
to acknowledge that context and how that's um, how that is affecting whatever you know in the moment issue that we're dealing with. I mean that that's kind of where I'm at. I'm at a place where I I, I feel like I need to say hey, there are these harms that are present in the moment, you know, whatever they are, but we have to discuss them in the context of these historical and first harms. And we have to acknowledge that, like we have to really see that this is a part of what we're discussing here. And we can't, we can't choose not to do that. I mean, that's where I'm at. Right, and one of the, and one of the criticisms of restorative justice and restorative practices, it's not one of the criticisms of RJ, is that it's not subversive enough. And what I mean by that is, people talk about the individual harms, and and they try to resolve it by undoing the harm. However, they don't go what is actually the motivator for those harms. Someone might be poor. Someone might have a dis um, a disparity in their educational level. So then, so then the criticism of white RJ over the last 30 years is people just take care of the individual harms at a superficial level and not dig, drill deeper to say what is causing those harms. What are, what are the factors? What are the pushing mm -hmm. factors? That that's where that's where RJ has maintained white supremacy because. I have heard, oh, God. I have heard people of color tell me when we try to bring up race, a white circle keeper, we can't talk about race because it's too disruptive. When race is the issue. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you to everyone for indulging me here around this whole conversation. I, I, it's just something I'm just grappling with and I'm grappling it with, with my business partner around this, you know, I, it's a lot. And I just want to say that I want to get it right. And that's my goal. I'm hearing your intentions are to do no further harm and to also respectfully inquire with uh, indigenous persons, with BIPOC communities, in order to ensure that your practices aren't making it even worse than it already is. Is that correct? Absolutely. <laughs> so, so I can't wait to talk with you. One, uh, we'll check in. Um, Catherine, thank you so much for, for sharing tonight. And um, I know we have uh, other folks that would like to pose some questions. And I also wanted to add, um, probably most of you already know about Tema Open. Um, I believe actually my friend um, who does this restorative justice life, it's a podcast that came out last year, um, did an interview with Tema on um, the qualities of white supremacist culture. And that's, uh, that's a, a gift that we can share out in our um, post event, share an email. Okay. So um, let's see. I know that, uh, is it Michaela uh, Maleka? Did you want to voice in or would you like to have your question asked on your behalf? Just want to honor your choice there. Thank you, Catherine. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't mind voicing in. It's, it's really um, 
a response to an, an ongoing need that I have as a restorative justice practitioner, um, but also something that you said, Edward, that really resonates, and that is that typical land acknowledgments often fall on my ears um, as being very virtue signally and um, often sort of trite. Um, and so it resonates with me when you say, when you reframed your, um, your email uh, signature uh, for to sort of demonstrate a land acknowledgement um, that feels more substantive. Um, but it's also your, your way of doing that is bound up with your identity. And so I am wondering about um, how other folks of color, how other BIPOC folks, um, either you or folks on the call, have managed to handle that um, or to reconcile that tension um, of wanting to make an acknowledgement, but also recognizing that many land acknowledgements end up um, being demonstrative um, without really getting at the heart of um, the permanence of Native peoples. Well, thank you for that question. Um, we got some. We got some people in the audience that could. I think someone has their hand raised, Michelle. I'm. There's. I think that's a good question to throw out to the crowd, and whoever wants to take that on. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I think Kizzy, you, uh, Tom and Kizzy are waiting. Um, and then Michelle, do you, is it all right if we stay in uh, the sequence? Actually, let's defer to you, Michelle. But go ahead. You're, you're already unmuted. Please, by all means. Oh, no, no. I had just, I had just put myself back on mute. I have no problem with being, um, you know, stepping, stepping back and allowing um, those who have already um, or in line. I have no problem. Okay. All right. Well, just want to honor if if you had something to share, and then we can come back to Kizzy and Tom. I do, but I'd rather uh, defer to those who are already waiting. Uh, on. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for being here, Kizzy. Did you want to uh, respond? Yeah. Yeah. And that was kind of where I put my name into the queue at. So. Um, uh, thank, first of all, thank you for allowing me to speak. This um, I just got this email from a former classmate and decided to come. I actually serve as the ethnic minority rep for uh, my union. And uh, one of the things NEA has done recently is ask all of our associates to do land acknowledgement statements. And as the ethnic minority rep, and I'm a I know it's hard to see with my background. I'm a BIPOC individual. Um, I'm part German, part African-American, as far back as I can tell, which is about 1863. We know why there. Um, that when we look at our representations, particularly when we're talking about it in Pennsylvania, one of the things we always try to point out and put in there, and I like the word stolen. We don't necessarily use that word, but in Pennsylvania, there are no more federally or recognized tribes in the state of Pennsylvania. So while the people are still there, Pennsylvania has essentially wiped them off as a people's group, as if they have no land, as if it was not their land. And 
the last time I wrote a land acknowledgement, we were able to come up with at least nine different tribes and how they no longer, according to Pennsylvania history, exist. So as I do land acknowledgements and I folk, and I do it to represent the, um, the, the uh, indigenous people in my state is I point out that these tribes have been completely wiped out as far as Pennsylvania, the government and even the federal government understand. Um, no native people in my state have actual treaties that are acknowledged anymore. So that has been my attempt within my associations. And then as a restorative practitioner, when I was trained in circle keeping, my trainers did a lot of emphasis on the idea of the circle coming from African and native roots. Um, I don't want to say necessarily spiritualism. I'm not sure if that's the word. So when I run circles and things like that, I bring in a lot of those traditions and talk about how this is how we are looking at healing and we are taking it from these cultures, which have taught us ways of looking at our past. And as someone was talking about looking at when you're dealing with someone who has some sort of issue, you know, we have victim and offenders, but offenders were often victims first. And as someone who works in the school setting, when I am confronted with a child that is a quote unquote offender, and I teach in the predominantly Caucasian area, and most of our offenders tend to be our BIPOC students, is what is going on? Why did you do what you did? Oftentimes that child got called a derogatory name by another student and they lashed out. Or that student did something to them outside school and they lashed out based on I had a young lady who was called the N-word, and then the next day she was expected to work in a small group with the two students that called her that. And that was, you know, of course that was going to be a violent act, you know, day. And so when we were doing our restorative practices, it a restorative circle was like what caused everything. So as try at least in my version, and I know I'm not perfect, and you know, this is a continuing learning experience, is acknowledging that a lot of these traditions, they're not Eurocentric. And I do think Eurocentric restorative justice really pushes out the idea of where we get the term circles and why that's more powerful than doing a square or triangle or any other shape. But also everyone has a backstory. And what is that backstory? Not just the surface level traditions. And then how, how does that just play out? And I'm starting to ramble, so I'm going to stop speaking now. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kizzy. Thanks for hosting in and for sharing your experiences. Really important. Um, and uh, uh, by the way, I did email you the screenshot. Sorry, you were having trouble with that. <laughs> it, um, anybody else that uh, had any trouble with the land acknowledgement image? Did everybody? Open that okay, successfully. All right, so um, Barbara, I think we had you next. I hope I'm, I'm staying in line with uh, those who've been patiently waiting here. 
And then Michelle also, I believe. And Tom, if you still want to voice in, um, we're, we're running out of time here, but um, I'm not much of a linear time person, um, but I do respect you all and that it's late and especially Edward and Ed um, and your time. So uh, how about this? Let's, let's keep um, fielding more questions, have some more conversation. And um, if we go over time a little bit, Edward and Ed, is that okay with you? <clears throat> right, and um, just a reminder too, that this will be sent out to you all um, in the next 24 hours as a podcast. All right, let's, let's come back to Barbara and um, thank you all for this dialogue so far. Barbara, welcome. Thank you all, thank you all. I'm gonna be really quick. Um, as it relates to the land acknowledgement, um, where I, I work for an institution. I work for Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. You know, we sit on um, on the three fires of the Confederacy. Of the, yeah, so because I work for an institution and what I do as a dispute resolution specialist, as an RJ practitioner, and everything else that comes with that on campus and within the community uh, in the city of Detroit proper, um, the collaborative efforts from indigenous students that always, always, always um, call leadership out and call them to accountability. You know, um, so movement building on uh, on campus uh, from many different um, aspects um, has been, it, it, it's at the root to even acknowledge the land acknowledgement. And I'm not talking about crafting the land acknowledgement, just acknowledge the sovereign lands that this university sits on. To me, that's the first step. Um, so working with different um, people uh, to make sure that this is done. Um, and that's how I handle it. And depending on the situation um, as it relates to restorative justice, I, I, I just honor the practice of acknowledging the land. That's what RJ is rooted in. And if we forget that, um, then everything else is more difficult uh, to do. So as a black woman, um, that's how I pretty much start off before I start talking. It's given the land acknowledgement and it sets the tone, it makes people feel uncomfortable. It's, yeah, uh, I mean, that's in every setting, whether I'm dealing with young people in K through 12, or whether I'm teaching my social justice activism class on campus, I just make it a habit uh, to recognize the land acknowledgement. I don't know whether that helps coming from a black woman, um, but I just wanted to share that with you all. Thank you. Thank you, Barbara. Um, I owe an apology to Tom, he's been waiting forever. Um, so let's go back to him and Barbara, thank you. And then we'll come to you, Michelle. And for those of you that need to go, um, 
thank you so much for being a part of this tonight. And I do my best to do the best I can to keep track and be fair because it's really important to have everybody's voice in. So again, Tom, my apologies. And are you still here? Hope thank so. you, thank you, uh, thank you, Molly. I'm gonna I'm gonna cede my time right now to Michelle because I'd like her to go before me if there's still time later. I'll ask my Lakota brother my question. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Tom. Um, it's thank interesting. You. Thank you. It's interesting in that question as far as like, what can we do to continue um, uh, moving forward? Because um, the question I had is really is basically was just reframing it in a different way and is tr trying not to make what we, what's um, been discussed and, and what's moving forward as a trend because we saw so many times we see so many times when um, you know maybe la last year where um, we'll in the, the the dialogue will uh, center around um, justice and um, and equity but then it just sort of like fizzles, fizzles off and I just feel that you know continuing to um, discuss the issues, uh, continuing to um, make people to, to be aware of what um, is transpiring. Um, one of the things that I, I that really um, kind of was challenging for me was um, uh, the the idea of wanting to 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 give back and to um, to recognize you know the struggles uh, via Native Americans and um, men and women of color um, and being wanting to be sensitive. And then I don't know if a lot of people had um, remember the story of, uh, I guess the lady antebellum and wanting to, uh, I guess, give back the, the name, but then um, stepping on another kind of landmine of sorts with another um, person of color. And so it's like, you're, you're, call yourself fixing one area yet you step on the the, the land or the toes of another uh, so I really feel like that's something to have to be able to address that there is a holistic approach um, in righting wrongs and bringing healing and wholeness to um, all individuals who have had um, uh, land stolen and 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 things of that nature even in um, I think in California, um, the the beach property that had been taken from a particular couple, I think they were trying to um, return that that land. So it's it's holistic and it, and it's um, nationwide. But I just feel like just continuing to um, to talk about the issue uh, and share it. So those are just my thoughts. Thank you. Molly, you're on mute. Sorry about that. Um, Michelle, I just wanna thank you again for your patience tonight. And it's great to hear your voice. It's good to see you. Um, I know Tom, uh, thank you, Tom, for deferring. And can we come to you now? Thank you, thank you. Yes, Wopi Latanka. Hitchduello. This is the big question and we won't answer it tonight. Black Elk was a visionary. 
I love black elk. My grandfather. My, my question is about the vision for what needs to be done. What will be the final correction? What will that look like? If we know the vision, we can find the steps to get there. I know we can't answer that, but this is my question. I want to put this out here because we don't, we, okay, there. Number one. Number two, I put in the, the chat books that people could be reading about Native American healing and about Native American um uh, Joseph Marshall's books, right? Any of Joseph Marshall's books are, are tremendous. Uh, number three, I put in the chat about, there have been so many times I've been in these kinds of conversations and it's a one-time thing. And, you know, I, I, went, I wasn't one, and I do a lot of advocacy work in the black community here in Milwaukee, one of the most racist cities in the country. And the, the gentleman said, if all we do is talk, nothing will ever change. So I put in the chat, who wants to stay connected? Because my belief is ongoing circles and networks of people committed to working together and continuing the dialogue and moving to action. That's what's going to make a change. I put in there that we need to get the Black Hills back to the Lakota people. We need to follow the Laramie Treaty, exactly what you said. So that's my passion. And thank you for letting me speak. We need vision, we need ongoing interconnectedness, and we need to move to action. We need a plan. Thank you so much. Wopi Latanga Hea Hejduwelo. Okay. He was thinking, he was thinking, uh, he was giving a great, great uh, heartfelt gratitude to everyone. So that's the translation. <laughs> well, this is how we do it in a good way. This is how it looks when we do it in a good way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was uh, emailing Tom and when you spell in Lakota, the English spell check takes over and tries to, tries to figure out what word you're trying to use. And so it's very hard to type in, in, in my language because English spell check tries to correct it and it, sometimes it's hilarious <laughs> just appreciating everybody one of the unfortunate aspects of supremacy is the fear of silence thank you everyone um, allowing for spaciousness for other voices to chime in. Because we trust that when we allow the voices uh, that want to be heard, to be heard, then it naturally comes to a conclusion when it's ready. So I think I see Paula's hand coming up. And such a warm welcome to you, Paula. Thank you. you okay, um, yeah, there you go, you're yeah. on. I'm um, Edward, I'm struggling with the whole concept of land acknowledgement that is not backed by action. So that it feels to me that any land acknowledgement um, is simply performative. If, if we aren't doing something active to return land. And I wondered how you responded to that. Well, I I think Molly, Molly, 
laid out somewhat of a roadmap to using the kind of language in those land acknowledgement, like stolen, um, to say it is stolen land. Um, because most, if you read most land acknowledgements are pretty benign. I live, work and play in the traditional homelands of, and that's it. And one has to be very careful with, with the language um, of, 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 how you, of how you write things. Uh, for example, and, and this, this is an observation and not really a criticism, but I hear, I hear a lot of settlers when I talk about land return, they say, give, you mean give land back? I say, no. I said, first of all, it is not yours to give. You can't give something back to us that never belonged to you. So don't say give land back to us. What you can do is you can return stolen property. You stole it, you can return it, but it was never yours to give. So that you've got to be careful of how the settler narrative still tries to maintain its dominance in the very way we try to talk about land acknowledgements, land return. And that's just one example. I and mean, there's a thousand more out there that um, are so many verbal microaggressions about things indigenous. Um, so that, and that's, that's how from, from cradle to grave, settlers are inculcated with a certain narrative and framework of how to talk to indigenous peoples. Um, and that, and that's probably one thing you need to, what settlers need to do is look at the very language they're using um, and try to understand their, the, the use of the English language is, is a very uh, powerful tool to also marginalize and dismiss um, land acknowledgements. And so those, so those are the kind of things that and the other thing is, know the indigenous peoples whose whose land you are on. And a colonizer trick is to call us American Indians, Native Americans. What else? Um, perhaps First Nations, if you're in Canada. But that homogenizes us, you know. But it but it's something that's there. And, and so, so um, I think to be, to be understanding of the, of, the, of the indigenous peoples whose land you are on, um, it, it's good to, to name them as what they call themselves. So those are just things to begin to start the wheels um, in, in trying to make those land acknowledgements more potent and more powerful. That is why I use a bit of my own language and my own land acknowledgement. Um, and, and quite frankly, I just got tired of reading all the land acknowledgements that were pretty benign, didn't name the harms, didn't, didn't no call to action. And when you have a land acknowledge, acknowledgement like that, all, all that's happening is settlers are still maintaining the status quo without any kind of actions. So use of language and call to actions are good. And there are several other ways 
land acknowledgements can manifest itself outside that framework. Um, right now, the indigenous peoples of Canada, North America, Central America, South America, we are in a hellacious fight with the United States, Canada, New Zealand, Australia to domesticate treaties in such a way that it's that these colonizing systems eventually limit us to just self-government, limited jurisdiction as we talk. And so, so you know, at the international level, um, the United States and Canada do the most horrific things so that the international community can't look at what's going on with indigenous peoples in the United States. If we were to get on a decolonization committee list of the UN, you guys would have blue helmets in the United States protecting indigenous peoples. Imagine if, if the UN assembly said, yeah, we're gonna put the, we're gonna put the Lakota nation on the decolonization list, then we could petition the US to have the blue helmets in the United States to protect us. But you guys, but no one knows that. So there's an international dimension to land acknowledgement as well. And so, so, you know, this stuff flies below the radar, what's going on at the international level. But almost every, every nation in the world knows about my people's fight against colonization. They know more about our situation than most settlers do in this country. And that's, and that's, that's because of the, of, the, of the narrative that's being given to settlers from uh, cradle to grave. There's a lot going on out there in the world that, that indigenous people are engaged in international levels. And the US fights like hell to make sure that it, our, our, our voices does not break through the UN in such a way that we would be recognized as, as a sovereign people. And that would just, again, uh, put forward a lot of challenges to the states. So, yeah, there's there's a <laughs> there's a land acknowledgement is just one part of a larger issue about sovereignty and self determination and jurisdiction and the right to coexist as a people. Um, civil rights are. Are important, but we as uh, indigenous people, we talk about human rights. We talk about genocide, and I think the black brothers and sisters can talk about genocide. I mean, I think what's happening with with police brutality is outright genocide against you know the black brothers and sisters. They're just killing them, and that's crazy. You know, but they don't call it, some, some of the black freedom fighters are calling it genocide, but the corporate media, they don't, they don't call what's happening to, to the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, they, they look at that as 
a few bad apples among you know law enforcement which is state-sponsored violence against people of color particularly against the black lives matter people of the community so i mean there's there's a lot that I would like we could talk about all these intersections that are happening among people of color and indigenous peoples that we have probably a lot in common, but we don't have those discussions. You know? So anyway, it's just it's just it's just whew. are you gonna keep me up all night thinking about this? <laughs> Bob. Thank you. Bob. Yeah. Uh, thank you. I I feel like I'm starving. I'm starving for accurate information, for shared, agreed upon language. Um, I find myself whistling when I hear indigenous people called American Indians when the continent was not America and it wasn't India. And, and I feel like it's incredibly disrespectful. Um, but one thing that I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around also is the concept of, of land. And what I wonder is a, con, a contrast between um, capitalism and colonialism um, in contrast to um, our indigenous people's concept of land with ownership. And I don't know if, if my understanding is correct, but my understanding has been that indigenous peoples didn't feel as though land was owned. It was occupied as where you live. Um, and then the colonists came in and owned it and took it over. Am, am I misinformed or, you know, help, help me clarify. I, I, I want to truly understand and, and um, not be experiencing this cognitive dissonance that's really bothering me. <laughs> um, well, I, 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 I think land is, It, it's almost hard to, it, it's almost hard to describe um, you know I've read I've read the settler narratives where they said you know my people were nomadic they didn't have any sense of ownership and but that's totally untrue we had ownership not in the ways that the West could recognize but a sense of belonging well yeah we have I mean our origin stories place us in a certain area and our original instructions say, this is the area where you emanate from and you need to have this relationship. And so therefore our, 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 our set of original instructions are like vastly different than let's say the three major religions, original instructions. Ours, ours are very different. Um, and and so the relationship we have, um, I mean, it's very it's very it's very theological in some ways and very complicated. But I would just say, 
we have an understanding that is fundamentally different than how the West relates to land. And so we may have not had boundaries and markers, but every native nation knew who their neighbor was and their neighbors. I mean, we knew our neighbors before, before Columbus or the Vikings ever set foot on the shores. We knew our, who our neighbors were down at the tip of South America. We had a greater understanding, and if you know, and what 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 people don't understand is is that um, this part of the world was about as close as the world would ever come to what would be described as a Garden of Eden. And if you don't believe me, read the read the early colonists' writings. They talk about these trees that were 200 feet high along the Atlantic coast. And the trees that got out there are like twigs compared to what the colony, what the settlers first seen. You know, a squirrel could run up a tree on the east, on the Atlantic coast and not touch the ground until it hit the Mississippi River. And my sense is, is, is a good word is connectivity to the land. Yeah, I, I those are those are those are English words that are probably adequate, but not, but not going far enough. Yeah, we've got some translation problems, don't we? You do. I mean, when we call the when we call the Earth Ujimaka, we call a grandmother Earth. That is a literal relationship. She is our grandmother. It's not a figure of speech. It's not a metaphor. Not connectivity, it's blood kin. Bob, it's blood kin. That's how deep we go. Oh. That's pretty connected. When you're talking about blood and and related. Well, let's go further than blood. It's about spirit. It's about spirit. It's how our spirit is connected to the spirit of our mother and of the sky, and everything else, all the things, the, the two-leggeds, the four-leggeds, the wingeds, the trees, the plant people, the tree people, the stone people, all of it, it's spiritual. Aho! So it's an existential kind of being. It's oh, real. Of... It's not existential. It's real. We feel it in our bodies. That's how yeah, we feel yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with that. I know, I know. I'm trying to give you the depth of what we, how we live and what it means to us. This is what people don't know. Well, I, I think maybe what Tom was probably getting at is, unlike the Europeans who voluntarily are, have push and pull factors that, that they left their homelands to, to sever us from our homelands, would kill us. Mm. I really appreciate this conversation. Yeah, yeah well, I, I think it's it's a deep one. It's complicated. It has history behind it. And, you know, um, you can't start this race near the finish line. We'd have to go almost to the beginning and 
line up and pretty much goes to that journey together. It, it, it's complicated, as we all know. I mean, race relations in the United States is <laughs> never simple. I, I could tell you that. And so there's a lot of discussion that has to, I think, happen between, between the communities of color. I, I, and those are going to be very difficult conversations. Um, yeah. There's a whole, there's a whole area of, of conversation, uh, of, of difficult conversation. I, I, I have been involved in what's called courageous conversations about race. And, and here in, in my city, the library took on a whole year of courageous conversations about race, mandatory for the staff, but a whole freaking year and it was glorious. I don't wanna hog up the conversation here though, but thank you. Thank you so much. I think we really need a lot more of this kind of conversation, give and take back and forth and creating understanding. Thank you, Bob. Does anything else need to be known? And thank you, Mika. Um, if you don't mind, I'm gonna read what you just posted. Um, Mika, also just thank you for all your work with RJI. I don't mind. Go ahead. Okay, go ahead. Oh. Oh, you want me to read it? <laughs> if, if you would, it's lovely to hear your voice. Sure. Um, I wrote, um, just listening to some of the questions that are coming in from my fellow white identified settler friends. Um, I wrote cognitive dissonance, discomfort, not knowing and not getting things right are all experiences that we white folks need to practice sitting with. It is okay to have those feelings and we get to sit with those experiences and feel the feelings. <laughs> <laughs> and and practice not reacting sometimes or asking for reassurance. Thank you, Mika. Thank you so much. And um, I wanted to just acknowledge and thank you for your extraordinary dedication to this field. Uh, right back. Mika. Mika founded the Restorative Justice uh, Initiative um, with other colleagues out of New York. Um, we are energetically winding down, but I would like to share, please network um, in any way you see fit. And of course, uh, Restorative Justice on the Rise will be um, wanting to hear from you about your interest in continued conversation, conversations, such as the one that we've had together tonight. And um, I know for myself, uh, what we've shared here, even though we did record it and it is a podcast, I hold it uh, very close in my heart and appreciate you all for all the forms of feedback. Um, the universe is a feedback and it would do us all well, especially as others to listen to it um, on the note of what Mika just shared. So um, Edward, or I mean, Ed and Wanli Wapaha Hokshila, um, deepest heartfelt thanks to you both.
And just wondering if you'd like to conclude with uh, anything further to be known this evening, including a closing thought, prayer, um, anything to leave us with. And we'll look forward to continuing this and we'll see if, if we can entice you back <laughs> at some point. One or both. Well, um, my experience is it takes a lot of work as a white person. A lot of, um, and, and the book study it just has been invaluable with a, a group of people that um, explore together. Uh, and we've had the, the, the great fortune of having indigenous people that wanted to be part of the group also. So I think um, we, just, we just have to do the work. It's, you, you can't have the discussion in my mind without white people doing the work first. I would say um, um, I, have a, I have a colleague who I work with. Uh, Molly might know her, her name is Denise. And um, she tells me now as a white woman, she thinks about race every day. She said before, before she had that reckoning or awareness, she said, her, her favorite line to me is like, I know people of color, indigenous people talk about race every day, but white people, we just talk about weather. And, um, and she says now as a white woman, she's constantly thinking about race all the time, which is, I think that's probably where it needs to go because for the longest time, I think white people have never really thought about race. It was so invisible. It was so normalized, it seemed natural. And then to be explicit about it is, and, and then recognizing uh, whiteness has began, at least in, in my colleagues' understanding, she says, now I think about race a lot now, which I think is a, a good move in that direction. Amen to that. I agree every day. Thank you, Molly. Thank you, Tom. Are you ready to close? We're ready to close. And I just want to thank everybody once again for this space together this evening. And please be in touch. We'll be um, connecting with you. Oh. And please uh, share the work of the Kessler Keener Foundation. Yes. Um, KesslerKeenerFoundation.org. And they're on Facebook as well as YouTube. And we'll make sure that we follow up with all of that and not fill this space up too much with those details right now. Thank you. Thank you so much. Molly, you got a few seconds afterwards? Sure do. Okay. Tom, over to you. So Molly agreed. Oh, John. <laughs> uh oh. John is raising his hand. Okay. Haven't heard from you all night, John. What was I? Oh, I, I thought I was saying goodbye. <laughs> I wasn't oh, okay. sure. I, so. thought you, I thought you were chiming in to offer something. So well, um, I, we I have... could have been actually. I mean, yeah, no, I really appreciate what everybody said. And I 
I, I would just like to throw in the, the idea that repeating these things is a good idea. And um, that these kind of conversations, because they touch on so much intergenerational trauma in collective trauma, I, I feel like it, it's like it's good to go deeper in layers and, and work <clears throat> at it, creating relation, right? And trust. And yeah. <clears throat> Thank you. So glad that you were here tonight. Thank you, John. And thank mm. you, Tom, for your offer. Mm. Tom has offered to share a holy song to close us out, Lakota. Thank you, Tom. And then I'd also like to end uh, with that Anishinaabe. <clears throat> the Anishinaabe people are here in Wisconsin. The Lakota once were here in Wisconsin, the stolen land, right? And so I'd like to do both the Lakota, just a two, two bars of the Lakota song and then the Anishinaabe prayer. <clears throat> And I've said that this is a sacred time. So if you would all would just go into your heart and recognize the sacredness of our love for each other, no matter what we look like, we all came here out of love. And so if we go into that space of love in our hearts, that's what matters most, care and concern. And so we say, Unchiaya chechechiolo. Unchiaya chechechiolo chechechiolo yona hene wai wachielo o makiayo yona hene wakantonga yona hene nishnala wansialo yona hene wakantonga nish lechia ai tuano I to one oh yona hene wani watch yellow makia yo yona hene walk on tonka nishnala I'm sorry walk on tonka yona hene nishnala once yellow yona hene hoa basically we're saying hear us hear us hear our prayer we call to you. We need your help. So in the Anishinaabe, I'll say each line, and I'll say the English, and then I'll say the whole thing. Gitchi Manitu, the name of God, dear God. Miigwech, thank you. Thank you for everything I've received today. Kigwich, for all I've given you, you are welcome. Apenji, we're even. Ninsigawewin. We are all one family and we love one another. So, Gichimanitu, Miigwech, Kigwich, Apenji, Ninsigal Waywin. Aho. Wopilatanka, big thanks. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.